0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Part, of course, of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm Eric, your host, and today, part two of It Was the Best of Times, It Was the Worst of Times. And this is the part I'm actually really excited about because I think it's the one that really surprised the snot out of me when I did the research. It's going to surprise a lot of people listening to this too. We're going to be talking about the economy and it turns out it's going in a lot of ways very differently than the way a lot of people have thought. As usual, we're not going to get into 2022 at all. What I mostly want to talk about is sort of like the last 30 years and Part of the narrative as I know it from a lot of people my age is that things have gotten worse. They were great for boomers. Everything was easy. Everything was cheap. You made a ton of money and there were really no problems. And now everything is more expensive. We can afford less. And so the first thing I wanted to look at was real wages, right? And you'd figure real wages are going down. Now, what are real wages? The idea is how can we understand how people can spend money based on how much money they make, right? Because back in the 70s, people made $2 an hour. Early 70s, people made $2 an hour, and they seemed to be doing pretty well because things were cheaper. So you try to account for inflation. And so there's a couple of ways to slice this, and we'll look into that. One of the things that's going on in 2022 where we are going to stay out of it is that inflation got crazy. It's clear it was happening before the Ukraine war, but it's clear that the Ukraine war is a driver, but also supply shortages are a driver because we stopped making things for a while in 2022 and still getting caught up. Super aggressive monetary policy where you have historically low interest rates for historically long time is gonna catch up with you. And not only did we stop making things in 2020, but we kept buying them because we had we had stimulus packages. So it turns out you could throw money all over the place, but if you can't make stuff, that money is just going to inflate. And so there's all this stuff that we've done over the past 14 years, also in 2020, which wasn't necessarily the wrong thing because it probably prevented the Great Depression or might have. Who knows? So that's gonna be there are going to be a lot of PhDs on this in the future. But we have a lot of inflation right now and I might want to do an episode later on inflation. I know some people that are like, oh, you probably see it on Facebook, you know, oh, it's definitely Biden's fault. Like Joe Biden did something. I don't know what the policy was, but he did something that is causing inflation. And the thing that's most often cited is a third stimulus package that was probably not necessary. And it probably didn't help, but it would be the kind of thing that would be lead to what you'd call transient inflation because it's one-time money drop and then there's other people like it's corporate greed as if corporate greed was like off for a long time and then it switched on in 2022 for some reason and it turns out it's economics in ways that a lot of economists had been predicting for quite a, and nobody wanted to listen to if you've ever seen the movie look up scientists including economists around the world are frustrated nobody listening to them this is another case Anyway, so real wages are wages minus inflation. We're going to look at the two most common ways of measuring it, CPI and PCE. CPI is the Consumer Price Index. PCE, I forget what it is, but we're going to talk about how they're different. Both of them try to use baskets of compensation and baskets of prices of goods to figure out overall comp and overall prices and stuff. So the CPI is updated by saying, we're going to look at all these different goods, how much their price has changed and... We have like weight. They have these standard weightings that they actually change sometimes, which is kind of confusing because it means that you'll have these like spikes in the graph that look like inflation, but it's just like they've changed how they measure stuff, but they're small. And they use that to try to figure out how much is inflation. You put some percentages on the growth of wages and you can figure out real wage. Now, one of the common problems with any inflation calculator is there are material changes to things that can make them more or less expensive. And there are new things that we buy. So for example, we buy mobile phones and those mobile phones get more expensive, but they also get massively more powerful. So is them getting more expensive? How much of that is due to inflation and how much of that is due to like lots of stuff? Because now if you buy a mobile phone in 2022, You've got a camera that's better than any multi-thousand-dollar camera 20 years ago, and it's just right there in your phone. Maybe not any, but a lot of them. Similarly, cars can get more expensive, but they're electric now, and so you can spend less gasoline. They have all these automated features, safety features. So, like, the cars are better than they used to be, and they also cost more. So how much of that is inflation? How much of that is new stuff? Tough to say, but we're going to run with it anyway, just knowing that we have some problems. PCE is like CPI, but PCE doesn't just include your wages. It includes benefits as compensation, and CPI does not... And so we know healthcare prices have gone up so dang much, and there's other forms of employee compensation that are more and more common. So non-monetary compensation, stocks and options, what else? Childcare, stuff like that, especially if you're like in engineering, if you're in one of those like upper middle class jobs, those those benefits and perks are bigger. And PCE says they're real compensation. And we know, therefore, like those healthcare benefits have gone up a lot because healthcare is getting more expensive. And so it can make the growth of compensation look better because your CPU. PI is saying, hey, your healthcare is getting more expensive. You're spending more. And PC is saying, yeah, it's getting more expensive and employers are compensating you for it, more for it. And so it's going to measure compensation growth higher. So let's look at how some of this stuff has changed. Using PCE, so that's the one that includes compensation, benefits as compensation, since 1990, so over the past three decades, median worker wages, real wages, have grown by 25%. So you can now essentially buy 25% more stuff than you used to be able to. And it says for the bottom 20% of workers, wages actually grew by 33%. And this actually looks pretty good. And it's surprising given the sort of like millennial attitude that at least I see around me. So if we go look back at CPI, it doesn't look as good. Instead of 25% growth, you have 20% growth since 1990. And again, this is surprising because we get the sense that things have gotten worse. But actually, I'm looking at a CPI graph by the federal reserve and it looks really really good recently so if you follow that graph from about 1990 and to be fair 1990 is where you had this kind of bottoming out so if we look before 1990 real wages from the mid-70s dropped significantly due to lots of inflation and stagflation and then a a recession in the early 1980s actually a double recession it was rough so tons of inflation then recessions we saw stuff drop. And in the middle of the 1980s, compensation real wages started to rise a little bit. And then they dropped again to almost their bottom from the 70s in 1990. And they stayed flat, 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 flat until about 1997. And they started ticking up significantly. And we were seeing wages like we had in the late 70s. So you actually had from the late 70s To the late 90s, this 20-year period where wages didn't rise at all, right? So again, a lot of people look back on this period as like these halcyon days, like the 90s, the 80s. Everything was going great. Everyone was partying all the time. Well, people were making less money in the 80s and 90s than they were in the 70s. Less right? And I want that to sink in for a second. Then they climbed back up. And then in the 2000s, they kind of bumped around a little bit. It wasn't just the dot-com bubble bursting and the short recession there. There was a lot of drivers that I don't understand all of them, but wages started looking like they were going to pick up. And then the Great Recession hit and that drove wages back down as as the market recovered. But wages were still hanging out at levels higher than they were in the 80s and 90s. So even after the Great Recession, average wage where they bottomed out, average wages were higher, real wages were higher than they were in the 80s and 90s. So even at the worst of it, still doing better than the 80s and 90s in terms of real wages. Now, you'd like that to have grown a lot more, right? It would be great if it had gotten a lot better, but it had not gotten worse, right? Because again, real wages take inflation into account. So the idea is you can buy more stuff than you used to be able to. And then what happened was the labor market started tightening and wages really started to roar. So they picked up starting from about 2014, they started picking up. So federal policy was trying to get people back to work, picked up and up and up. And then we started talking about a labor shortage, right? And what happened that labor shortage? All these people say, all these people, sorry, I'm just on Reddit way too much, but people complain like, oh, if there's a labor shortage, why don't you pay more? Well, they did in 2018 2019 2020 over that like two year period from early 2018 to early 2020 real wages jumped by nearly 10% which is huge so like in a two year period you can suddenly buy 10% more than you used to be able to which is just massive massive and if you look at this graph there's this almost like vertical line leading right up to the pandemic and unfortunately after that we to start to drop again. And so if it weren't for this like pandemic black swan event, we'd have been in this really interesting position with a really, really tight labor market and skyrocketing wages. It's kind of a shame if you're a worker. And so a lot of people had this sense that the economy was roaring under Trump and it started under Obama and it kept going under Trump, but then it really, really cranked up. And it was, again, probably due to very low unemployment, which is supply and demand. And I know a lot of people don't somehow don't think that applies to labor, but it clearly seems to, at least to some extent, because when... Supply got really short, prices got really high. And so when people talk about real wages growth, a lot of people, for some reason, like to pick 1970 as the place they start. So they say, oh, year-over-year year growth of wages has been really low since 1970. But if you say, well, look, the 80s and 90s were really rough, especially the 80s and 90s were really rough up to about 1995, and you pick a different time, like 1990, well, things are doing great. People have between 20 to 25% more on average than they used to. Cool. And the bottom 20% of workers, their wages grew by 33%. Cool. So things did get a lot better. So if, uh, again, go to reconsidermedia.com and you'll see a chart that bottoms out at zero rather than bottoming out at not zero. So the changes are less, but you can look from like 19, like basically wages peaked in like 1973 and they went down and down and down and down and down and down until 1995. And then they started going back up again. So Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump is when things got better. Now, Who knows what, not who knows, I don't know what presidential policies drove this the most or drove it at all, but here we are. We have growing wages. So that's neat. What's really interesting is that when you dig in here, you really see benefits exploding as a portion of compensation over the last 20 or so years. So the employment cost index for civilian workers in the U.S. in constant dollars, you see total benefits in the early 2000s, growing a ton, and then outgrowing wages and salaries again in the 2010s. And so that's why, again, CPE, things look so much higher. Everything I was describing with the Fed graph is CPI. Really, really interesting (laughs) is neither measure, PI or PCE, neither includes houses as a cost. Includes rent. So if you're paying rent, that's already been taken into account. So everyone's saying, hey, my rent is higher. Again, pre-2020, On average, the average worker, and this is, we're talking about the median worker, by the way, and so this doesn't necessarily just include the rich getting richer, although the rich did get richer, as we'll see, but rent is included in both CPI and PCE, but buying houses is not, and as we all know, houses got more expensive, and we'll cover that. College also only makes up 1.5% of the CPI index. And so for a lot of people in who are younger, the burden of paying back college loans might actually be like undercalled, And so it really looks like the big drivers of any problems that most of the median American has, well, if they're young, they owe a lot of college debt and that only makes up 1.5% of the CPI index, probably because all the older workers aren't paying that. And it's like, oh, okay, so it's not that relevant, but it's very relevant. By age, it doesn't include buying houses, and we'll look at home ownership as well, and home prices, and again, CPI doesn't include healthcare. But if you look at the last 20 years or so, we do see, again, there's this graph where you say, okay, the median worker using CPI has done a little bit better. The 75th percentile worker, so those upper middle class folks, have done significantly better. The 25th and 10th percentile, so this is the bottom earners, have done not so good. And of course, the 90th percentile earners have done great. One thing I'm going to say as an aside is that income, like wages, we're looking at wages here. Wages have gone up somewhat significantly for top earners, but because the stock market was doing so dang well and asset prices went up so much over the past 10 years or so, they got a lot, lot wealthier because they're earning a significant part of their wealth, not through wages, not through working income, because they have spare money, they can put it into these investment vehicles, those get higher, whereas people to further down don't, obviously. And so they got significantly more wealthier over this time period than this graph of their average weekly earnings going up from, was it 1800 to about $2,050 in real dollars. So it's a 15% rise for them over the past 20 years, but of course their wealth went up a lot more. And so you go, okay, so it's not so good for the median worker. But, 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 what's really interesting is neither CPI nor PCE includes government entitlements, investments, 401ks, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment, food stamps, all that stuff went up over the past 30 years and taxes on lower income earners went down. And so as much as, for example, people say that Trump tax cuts were were great on the rich, and they were, they also significantly increased the standard deduction. And I believe the child deduction has increased as well. And so a lot of folks in lower rungs of income, they can deduct a lot more, which means that their taxes are a lot lower. And so what if we incorporate all that? We say, hey, all the money coming in minus taxes, right? Because the above stuff doesn't include taxes. So if your tax burden is lower, you're now making more, even though CPI and PC don't include for that. And so Fortune went ahead and included all these benefits in a study. And so if we use PCE, which includes cash compensation and benefits, and all those above changes to government, mostly government spending and entitlements, we see median real household spending power, which is how much stuff you can buy at the end of the day after you get all the stuff in and taxes get taken out. Between 1990 and 2015 actually went up by 43%. So this is for the median American. And remember, 2015 was when wages really started accelerating. So when they have this towards 2015, but their spending power went up in that 25-year time period, by almost 1.5x. And it's probably now more than 1.5x higher. So the median American, they can buy probably about 50% more stuff now than they could in 1990, or at least by 2020. So in that, after 30 years, probably 50% more. For the bottom 20%, that spending power actually went up by 62% over the same 25-year period. Again, because they're paying a lot less in taxes, care, which I know applies to the elderly, but Medicaid, unemployment, food stamps, other benefits all went up, taxes went down. So they could spend a ton more. So some of this seems to clash significantly with the sense that everyone is economically frustrated. And again, the last two years have been really, really weird. But my speculation here, actually I already mentioned before, but I skipped ahead, is that housing prices, healthcare prices, and education prices have skyrocketed significantly faster. And buying a house is really important for most Americans as a path to economic stability because you're not flushing money down rent, even though houses are expensive to maintain, you build equity. And at some point, you aren't making mortgage payments anymore. So in your latter years, you're able to to retire easier because your costs are lower, right? And so not being able to afford a house is really painful. And this is because housing prices have gone up. And this is in part because, I think in large part, but in part because of easy money, very low interest rate for a very long time policy that makes that money ends up largely in the hands of a lot of investment banks and such who are looking for places to put that money because the stock market went up so much from the same reason that stocks are overpriced significantly and happened for years. PE ratios are ridiculous. And so they look for other assets to put that money into, they put them into houses. And if you, so if you can't afford a house, you keep sinking money into student loans, rent, and potentially unexpected healthcare costs. And this is where you can get a lot of economic frustration. So even though their incomes can buy them more food, cars, trips, electricity, stuff, et cetera, et cetera, we have these big, seemingly unproductive sinks that clobber us. So that's my guess on why people feel economic frustration. And this is supported by the fact that the housing price to rent ratio has actually significantly skyrocketed over the past 10 years. So you can still afford to rent, but you can't buy as easily. And what's interesting is this actually decreases the housing prices going up relative to rent so much, suggests two things. One, Again, people are using them as investment vehicles rather than living in them. Because if rent isn't going up that much, it means like the demand for housing isn't for people living in housing isn't going up that much. Like there isn't a supply problem necessarily. You just have a lot of people bidding on the assets, but then they can't turn around and monetize them. So you actually hit this point where it doesn't make sense to buy a house anymore if what you're going to do is rent it out because you're not going to make money fast enough. And that may have been a big part of why the Fed wanted to put the brakes on. Because again, in the last couple of years, Since 2020, things got bananas. So let's look back at rent then. How has that changed? What we generally want to look at, I think, is what percentage of the money you spend has to go to rent, right? The higher, the worse. Right. If you have to spend 80% of your income on rent versus 20%, like 80% would be really bad and 20% would be really nice. So, and again, we get this sense that rent as a fraction of consumption has gone up and it has since 1985 for actually everyone but the median American. For the median American, it's maybe up a tiny bit and it's only really up because of how things changed in the latter 2010s. For the lower, for the lowest quintile of American, it went up from 1995 to about 2004 and then back down. And they got really weird and spiked in the 2010s. And even for the wealthiest Americans who are paying, their fraction of consumption has gone up. But the fraction that wealthier Americans spend on rent is lower. So the poorest Americans spend about 40% of their income on rent. The median American spends about 26%, maybe 27%. And then the wealthiest fifth of Americans spend about 23, 24. So yeah, we'd want this to be going down, right? You'd want it to be the case that as we make more money, we can afford more house. And so we either get nicer houses, which... I don't know if that's the case, but generally speaking, we'd at least want to be able to get the same houses for less money because that's what getting wealthier is about. And what's interesting is the fact that rents have gone up kind of across the board. This does suggest that housing construction is a little bit behind because again, you should have a supply demand thing if you have inflation, but if your income is going up faster than inflation, which we know that it is, right? Because we just reviewed that. So income is going up faster than inflation. So you shouldn't have rent as a portion of your consumption going up. It should be going down. And so it's a little worse, but not crazy worse. But it means that people don't feel the benefit of their higher wages as much. And about late 2020, mid-2021, rent started absolutely exploding. Housing prices got bananas. I mean, it just got absurd. And we're feeling a ton of pain about it right now. And there are a few key reasons. Construction is harder due to supply chain issues. So it's harder to build houses. It's more expensive to build them and stuff is harder to get your hands on. I think some of it may be that people are moving out of certain areas into others. So you have some areas becoming like just straight up dilapidated where the housing supply there is so undesirable that it becomes dilapidated rather than being reconsumed by someone. So that supply basically drops off the face of the earth. So supply is actually, some of the supply is disappearing. And so that's like Detroit after 2008, right? Like people literally just abandoned big parts of the city. And that stock, Of housing went away. And then I mentioned the issues with easy money policy leading to ultra bidding on housing, which the Fed decided to do something about because it was really bad. And Hayek is sort of spinning in his grave because he's saying low interest rates for a long time are bad and they'll lead to inflated asset prices and a lot of problems for the average American. And I think he was right, but that's my opinion. So let's look then at home ownership and what's been happening there. And again, the trends are surprising, not all good, but definitely surprising. So when do you think that homeownership rates in the U.S. started to decline? You might think it's around 2008, but they actually started declining in 2004. I don't know why. I just don't know. And they're going up significantly in the 1990s. So, From 1990 to 2004, they went up significantly. And a lot of this is probably your Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae type stuff that was designed to make it easier for Americans to own homes. But from 2004 to 2016, it crashed from 69.2% to 63.7%. Huge crash, right? Almost five and a half percentage points reduction. But then in 2016, it started ticking back up again. And so again, pre-pandemic, it went from 63.7 to 65.8. So it was ticking up, not as aggressively as in the 90s to 2000, but still pretty significantly. And the pandemic hit and homeownership went down again. So pandemic aside, we at least saw things kind of contrary to what we thought, at least over the past five years, going the right direction. They've been going down for a long time. And again, that's bad long-term economically because rent is a sunk cost, whereas a mortgage builds equity. And so you'd want more and more Americans to be able to become homeowners. Now, it should never be 100% because you want some people want to be mobile and some people are new in their careers and they don't want to Settle in a place for 20, 25 years. And if you have a more mobile workforce, that may be a major driver of home ownership rates going down because buying a house is a very high transaction cost and the early payments of your mortgage are mostly interest, not principal. So you're still flushing money down the toilet after that high transaction cost. And therefore, unless you're going to stick around for a few years, it's economically ill-advisable to buy a house. And so if you have a more an increasing mobile workforce, which might have been the case due to there's a lot of moving around for new types of technology jobs. And it's possible that was more of a driver than other like economic factors, than affordability factors between the 2004 to 2016 period. Just not clear to me. And it may be the case that, I don't know, as people, what we saw was people were getting wealthier starting in about 2015. You saw a more significant increase in income and you had very, very low interest rates, like very low interest rates. And that may have driven higher homeownership at that time. So a few other economic indicators that we want to look at. One of them is medical bankruptcies. Why? Because we talk about it a lot. So they're actually, they're a major driver of about two-thirds of all bankruptcies. Nothing is a singular driver because we have to spend money everywhere, but they're a major driver in two-thirds of all American bankruptcies. This is significantly higher than a lot of other countries. In Canada, 15% of bankruptcies are majorly driven by medical costs. In the UK, it's 8.2% of those bankruptcies. It's odd that in the UK, 8.2% of bankruptcies are significantly influenced by medical costs because those medical costs should be borne by the government. So it is the case that in the UK, you could buy supplement insurance. There are still costs even a single, in a single payer system, out-of-pocket costs, but, but it is so much lower. Now, what's really interesting is in the United States, total bankruptcies are less common so the U.S. bankruptcy rate, the, the like rate of Americans that go bankrupt every year, is actually lower than in Canada. So the U.S. has fewer people going bankrupt than in Canada, but more of them are driven by healthcare. Now, some of this may be law. Like it may just be that in Canada it's easier to declare bankruptcy or less painful, and therefore people are more prone to do it. Who knows? But problems are, of course, much bigger than just bankruptcy, right? Bankruptcy is just a, a lagging, a super laggy indicator of the economic pressure of medical bills, pushing a family over the edge. So a lot of families bear medical debt, take out mortgages, cut other costs before they declare bankruptcy because declaring bankruptcy is really bad for you. So how have these changed? Let's look at the period since the sort of Obamacare era and the expansion of Medicaid. So we do know that debt collections, so someone sending an agency to collect debt, dropped significantly over the 2009 to 2020 period. And this includes medical debt. The medical debt collections dropped less than other forms of debt collections. So again, this is another indicator we have that Americans are doing better over this time period, over this 2010s time period, because there are fewer debt collections going out. So people are less likely to be in distressed debt. So medical debt collection dropped, all debt collection dropped more than medical debt collection. But states that expanded Medicaid performed 34% better than states that didn't, because Medicaid is helping people not go into distressed debt over health expenses. Cool. I've had trouble finding a long-term graph. So there's a Stanford article that showed, that talked about this drop, but I I want to see a graph. I've got a 2018 to 2021 graph that alone, there is a 10% decrease in the balance of medical debt. So how much medical debt there is at any one time that that people owe is now 88 billion. It used to be 97 billion. So you have that 10% drop and, and that's a great thing because it means fewer Americans owe money for medical debt. So, and another interesting fact here is you might expect a lot of that medical debt to be on the elderly who have very expensive healthcare costs, but it's actually not the case at all. Now, maybe you knew that and I didn't, but Americans over the age of 65 are about 15% of those households have some medical debt. 70 to 74, it's 10 and a half. 75 and up, it's nine. Whereas it actually peaks 45 to 54 at like 23%, and it's just about as high for all adults. So basically, uh, a working adult is about twice as likely as a retired adult to have medical debt, and maybe that means that Medicare is working out pretty well for a lot of Americans. I don't know. Maybe that Medicare is better designed to handle and pay for end-of-life care, which is very expensive, and people who are younger, if they get something like unexpected cancer or something, it's more burdensome for them. So yeah, so the elderly are much less likely to have... Medical debt. Actually, I have two other indicators here that I want to go over real quick, and I didn't know where to put them. So they're my miscellaneous indicators. So one of them is child death, because everyone hates child death. So let's look at the how's that been doing. It's been going way, 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 way down, like way down, which is cool, because children dying is bad. So looking at children the age of five to 14 from 1980 to 2020. The likelihood that a child is going to die from an unintentional injury, the top cause being vehicles, has gone down by nearly 75%. So this is where like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and stuff happen. There used to be a lot of drunk driving in the United States and other irresponsible driving and and bad safety features and all sorts of stuff. And overall road deaths have gone down a ton in the United States, but it seems that children dying from vehicles has gone down even more. Now, it hasn't gone down as much since about 2008. It was like just screaming down. Between 1980 and 2008, but it's continued to go down, which is cool. Cancer: children are less than half as likely to die from cancer, which is also really cool because there's a sense that like the U.S. medical system hasn't gotten better; it's gotten more expensive, we know, but it's twice as good at keeping children from dying of cancer, which is awesome. Homicide: kind of death by homicide kind of ticked up just a little bit from 1980 to 1993, but then dropped down below 1980 levels and like kind of got flat. So like one in a hundred thousand die from homicide versus two in a hundred thousand from cancer. This is today, four in a hundred thousand from stuff like vehicles. Flu and heart disease, very unlikely. Suicide is about 1.5, which is actually a little terrifying. And it's actually trending a little bit up since 2007 or so. Not a crazy amount, but it seems to have maybe doubled. From something like 0. 0.7 or so to 1.5, which is terrifying. Just imagining a 5 to 14-year-old committing suicide because of, men, obviously, like a mental health crisis in the United States is horrible. And so that doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better. I guess I could go into all sorts of mental health measures, but I won't. And then finally, let's just talk through legal immigration because I read a Mitt Romney article recently where he was talking about America being in denial. And what I actually found very touching is he said, we're in denial about the Capitol riot, the insurrection. So he said, we're kind of pretending that didn't happen. He said, we're in denial about climate change. Mitt Romney, Republican, said we're in denial about climate change. It's a major, major, major problem and we're not doing anything about it. And he said, of course, we're in denial about our deficit, which I'm not even going into because it's not yet a major driver of like Americans' health, economic health. And it may or may not become that because it turns out, this is a tangent, but it turns out, The U.S. dollar to the euro, the U.S. dollar is worth 0.99 euro. It is almost back at parity, which it had not been since 2002, and then it dropped down to as low as 0.64. So if you traveled to Europe in 2008, which some of us like me did, you couldn't buy anything there, and the U.S. dollar has started to grow strong against the euro again. It's growing stronger against other currencies so the, yeah, the U.S. dollar is doing well. And so the deficit might not be crippling yet. But anyway, because it's a reserve currency, long story. But the fourth thing he talked about was illegal immigration. He said, we have a crisis at the border and we're in denial about that. And so I pulled out some old stuff from Wedge. And Wedge, we talked about between 1990 and 2007, the number of illegal immigrants in the United States went up from 3.5 to 12.2 million. So it like nearly quadrupled, more than tripled. And that's kind of crazy. Obviously, the DHS got fired up, started building a fence during that time period and, and stepping up patrols. Not a wall, of course. We didn't build a wall in, in the 2000s. No, no. We built a fence. The wall was a brand new, interesting, controversial idea in 2016 that everyone got very excited about. But it was only a fence in 2007, so nobody cared. Yeah. And so, but it's it had been the number of illegal immigrants in the United States has actually been like kind of trending down from that 12.2 million. Down, down, down. Now, the problem is you have different data sources for different estimates, but it trended down from about 12.2 million to 10.5 million in 2017, except if we jump to a different group's estimate in 2017, it's 11.4 million because group one, their data ends at 2017 and group two, it picks up at 2017. So let's just say it dropped to like 11.4 and then it stayed flat. And then what's interesting is during the pandemic, the number of illegal immigrants in the United States dropped by about a million. And probably because they're like, holy crap, we're getting out of here. It's a bit wild. And but then it jumped back up again in between 2021 and 2022, which is probably where you get that sort of like border crisis idea because you had a lot of people trying to get in all at once. So you had this in a year, a million people now. And that is significant because 1990 to 95, even this during like this screaming increase from the highest jump was 95 to 2000. And it was 3 million over five years. So 1 million in one year is quite a lot. It's actually more than 1 million. It's like 1.1 million in a year after losing about 1.2 million. So you have this high flux of illegal immigrants trying to get in all at once. And what I don't know is has that continued to go up or are we just kind of back at status quo? It turns out this data is a little hard to get your hands on, but we have till February 2022 and the number of illegal immigrants. In 2022, is the same as in 2017, which is where it had bottomed out in the previous graph. So it looks like it was trending down and then kind of flatlined. And that's where that is. So we'll learn a little bit more about how that's going on. I know that a lot of people say, hey, it's not a crisis. Migrants are great. And I agree. Immigrants are great. We talked in another episode about how we feel about immigration, including illegal immigration versus gentrification and uh, some of the challenges that come with a lot of people all showing up at once who don't have don't have like ways of interacting directly with the government and don't speak your language, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There are some real issues with that. So I uh, decided to count it for at least for at least parts of the country near the border in particular as a health indicator. And that is my kind of review of reconsider's this basket of indicators of the health of the United States. So just to summarize what we went through today, real wages up dramatically from 1990 to 2020 in particular over the 2015 to 2020 period. And depending on how you measure it, even better ticking up, which is not so good. Homeownership ticking up since 2016 until 2020. And then it got weird. So it was good until it wasn't. Housing prices up dramatically, not so good. Medical debt going down, which is good. Child death going down, which is good. And the number of illegal immigrants in the country, at least for a long time, I don't know what's going on in 2022, but kind of like trending downward, which suggests there isn't a flood at the border. And that's that. So hopefully you got to get a little bit surprised as well as I did, because if you did, what it means is you, like me, have been surrounded by a whole lot of narratives that people are very, very fond of and very, very fierce about and will repeat very loudly. And as we know, something from the Trump era is if you repeat something that's not true very loudly and repeatedly, you're going to get people who believe it. And, And you too might be someone who believed that something that was not true because it was said very loudly and repeatedly by people who aren't Trump. Maybe you believe stuff that Trump did say, but it turns out that when you go get the data, which I got by Googling, and you can Google it too, the world is often different from the way that it's portrayed in the news or social media, which Reconsider has been talking about eight long years now. So I hope you enjoyed I hope you learned something as I did. Thank you. Before I go, we have some new patrons recently. Thank you so much. We're always accepting new patrons. It's great to bring you guys in. Have you be part of the community? You guys can often access some cool stuff. You can get signed books by me, which is neat, and other goodies. So you can check out patreon.com slash reconsider if you're interested in that. Come see the show notes for sure on this one. There's a ton of graphs that are all really interesting. Reconsidermedia.com and click the show link. And you, of course, can go to the website and you can sign up for email updates. But if you've already subscribed via Spotify or etc., that's going to be good enough as well. So until next time, dear listeners, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause, reconsider. This is Eric signing off.